Ian's going to come and bring our reading for us uh, this morning from Job chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Termonite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blamelessness weighs your hope? Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey. The cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when sleep, when deep sleep falls upon men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in the houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk they are broken to pieces, unnoticed. They perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up, so that they die without wisdom? As over the last uh, couple of weeks, you'll know that we are uh, in this series of sermons in the book of Job, living in the storms of life. And uh, just to... Uh, Remind you that we started with the calm before the storm, with that uh, very calm scene that was painted in Job chapter 1 of this uh, perfect person with this perfect life and uh, with all the thousands of sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys and servants and children. And uh, one of the things that we said was important for us to remember from the opening chapters is that this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. In other words, that Job was an innocent man. And it's important that we keep reminding ourselves of that as we, as we work through the book of Job. That we remind ourselves that you and I, the reader and the author of the book, know that whatever anybody else says or does or whatever anything else happens in the story of Job, that Job is completely innocent. Uh, the author tells us and God himself uh, says that Job is an innocent man. There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. And then we went to that uh, scene in, in the heavenly courts, which, uh, where we went from the familiar to the unfamiliar, from the pleasant to the unpleasant, and we, we learned uh, the reason for Job's suffering. And again, we remind ourselves that Job and his friends know nothing of this conversation that took place in the heavenly courts. They are unaware and uh, are living in, in innocence and without the knowledge of that meeting. And then last week, uh, we visited Job after the storm when Job uh, opens his mouth. And uh, we were looking at that difficult chapter in chapter 3 where, uh, where Job breaks the silence and... Uh, 
Job uh, was, uh, breaks the mould. It was a different Job that we met in chapter 3 than we met at the end of chapters 1 and 2. Uh, a Job that was struggling. A Job that was uh, in the pits. A Job that was uh, wondering what on earth was happening. And a Job that was breaking down. And uh, the question that, would, that we, uh, we left ourselves was, would there be anybody else there to pick him up? Would there be anybody there to pick Job up? Because he was at his wits end, he'd, he'd hit rock bottom. And uh, he was wishing that he had never been born at all. And so, uh, as we're working through the, the, the chapter of Job so far, we've almost been taking a chapter at a time. But, uh, but, this, but this week we're dealing with, uh, with more than one chapter. In fact, we're dealing with... Uh, uh, almost 30 chapters, and uh, you might be glad that we didn't uh, read all 30 chapters. But as we've been saying, uh, we've been encouraging you to, to read uh, the book of Job through a chapter a day, and hopefully if you've been doing that, you'll have got something of the taste of the discussion uh, that Job has with his three friends. And uh, we're calling this Riding Out the Storm. Riding Out the Storm. As Job enters into this conversation with the three friends. Remember the three friends turn up and uh, they had those seven days of silence where nobody spoke. Nobody said a word. And uh, we mentioned that this has been uh, brought into Jewish custom. This is what they still do to this very day. That people sit with them and uh, they don't speak. And the rules is that you can't speak until the person that is mourning, the person that grieves, uh, opens their mouth and speak. And then you can speak. Well, Job has spoke. And so if you like, the friends have now been given permission uh, to respond and reply to what Job has said. And uh, in the chapters 4 through to 31, what we have in the heart of the book is this conversation that Job has with his friends about what is happening to Job. And uh, what I'm going to try and do this morning is uh, obviously not go through all the conversation. But like whenever we discuss anything, what very often happens is uh, we repeat the same arguments. Have you noticed that? If you're having a, a, a deep discussion or debate or an argument with something, very often you go round and round in circles and you say the same things time and time again. And that's what happens in, in the book of Job, that the same arguments are repeated and gone through and, and examined and, and, and taken apart and put back together. And so I'm just going to try and present the, kind of, the basic arguments that the three friends uh, bring and the response of Job and also our understanding of God. But first of all, it's... Um, <clears throat> It's important that we uh, recognise this, and Peter Bloomfield in his guide on the book of Job says this, uh, it's crucial for the understanding of the book that we realise that these three are good men. They're good people. We can all cope with the criticisms of fools. Just pause there while we take that in. We can all cope with the criticism of fools. But when it comes from solid, wise, godly men, it's hard to bear. When, when sensitive, caring, spiritual men aim their darts... It's very painful, especially when they are wrong. Who needs enemies? So it's important to remember that these are Job's friends. These are the people that turn up when the going gets tough. These are the people that come. Because, I don't know if it's your experience, but sometimes, you know, when, when life gets hard, when we experience difficulties, uh, when we're in trouble, uh, sometimes people stay away. Have you noticed that? That people stop visiting. Uh, that people almost tend to avoid you. Um, and, uh, you know, let's recognise that these three friends come to Job uh, to comfort him. Uh, you know, that's a good thing to do when people are struggling, to, to, to come alongside with him. And they sit with him for seven days, so they spend time with him. Uh, you know, so these are good, 
godly people that come alongside Job. We might, we might want to say some things that aren't so good about the friends, but I just want to point out, you know, that these are not bad people. Uh, these are good, godly people who come and sit with Job. So, the friends. And I guess we could storm, we, we, we could, we could uh, if we stay with a kind of storm theme, the friends think uh, it's a bit of a storm in a teacup, really. And uh, the things that they say to Job, uh, let's just have a look at some of the things they say. Well, Eliphaz, uh, the, the passage that we read, was the first speech from Eliphaz. There's three friends, and uh, it's, it's a very orderly way in which they speak. If you've read, you know, you'll notice one speaks, and then Job responds, and another speaks, and Job responds, and it goes through like that. And there's a cycle of three speeches. And uh, this is what Eliphaz says, Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished, Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And uh, basically what Eliphaz is saying is, Job, you get what you deserve. You get what you deserve in life. You reap what you sow. That's where that that phrase comes from. You know, lots of people use it. Uh, It's a biblical phrase. This is what Eliphaz says to Job. You reap what you sow. Uh, might, we might think it's not the kindest thing to say to Job, who's just uh, suffered all those losses and uh, is at his wits' end and is, 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 you know, wishing he'd never been born. And Eliphaz comes along and says, well, you reap what you sow. Um, you get what you deserve. Uh, he also says, blessed is a man who God corrects. So there's a suggestion here that God might be correcting Job for something. Uh, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Do not despise the discipline. So there's a, there's a sense in which, first of all, he's saying, you know, you get what you deserve, Job. Uh, but there could be something, you know, slightly positive in this, and it's God's disciplining you. So don't despise it. You know, God might be wanting to teach you. And how many times has someone come along to you and said, you know, maybe God's trying to teach you something through this. You know, it's not a bad thing to say. Um, we might just think the, the timing is not quite appropriate, considering where Job is. So blessed is the man whom God corrects, says Eliphaz. And then, you know, using a symbol when we're saying, the, you know, warning that we need to take care. Because Eliphaz also says, you know, a word was secretly brought to me. And then he goes on to expound. In other words, what he's saying is, the Lord says. And, you know, when someone says that, it's very difficult to kind of, uh, you know, come back at them. Because, you know, if, if they're suggesting that God has said this... You know, that's uh, you know quite a powerful thing to say, isn't it? And the warning is, you know, we need to be careful. Because sometimes we might generally feel that God has given us a word. Uh, but we just need to be cautious, don't we? Because sometimes we, we get words that may not be from God, that may be from our own minds or imaginations or from somewhere else. So we have to be careful here. And actually, let's not forget, we know something that the friends and Job don't know. You see, the whole conversation uh, is about whether Job's sufferings are deserved or not. Whether Job has done something to deserve this. Which the friends quite quickly come to that conclusion. Uh, we know that Job is innocent. So it's just a warning about how we actually use that kind of, you know, a word from the Lord. It's, it sounds great, doesn't it, if we say, you know, I've got a word from the Lord. Uh, but then we have to weigh it. And of course, Job is quite happy to weigh the words of the Lord. Uh, he's quite happy to weigh what the friends say and to come back at them. So that's what Eliphaz says. You know, it's a storm in a teacup, Job. You know, this is, uh, you get what you deserve. 
God might be trying to discipline you, and I've had a message from God to tell you that I'm right. And uh, obviously if I'm right, you're wrong. But uh, there we go. So, and then there's Bildad. Uh, Bildad says, does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is, what is right? In other words, you know, God can't be wrong. And of course, we'd, we'd all go along with that, wouldn't we? You know, God is always right. That's taken for granted. God cannot be wrong. It's a good, solid statement, isn't it? That God cannot be wrong. Um, and Bildad says, you know, when your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. You see what happens here? They, 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 they kind of, uh, they, you know, they, they, they're saying quite solid things. Um, but there's a kind of a, something not very nice about saying when, you, when your children have just been slaughtered and, and killed, uh, to say that, to suggest that when your children sinned against him. So the results of the children's um, death, the reason why death was for some sin that they have committed according to Bildad. Um, so there's kind of a nastiness that creeps in and sometimes that can happen um, even when we, th- we think we are uh, putting forward good sound arguments or even defending God if we're not very careful there can be a bit of a, a nastiness that sneaks in it's very obvious here in what Bildad says because uh, the last thing you would say to somebody in those circumstances is suggest that, uh, uh, that their children had died as a result of something that they had done Storm in a teacup. And then Zophar. Zophar's the last person to speak. And by the time Zophar speaks, he's getting a bit fed up with Job. Because Job keeps coming back. And we look at what Job says. And Job keeps coming back and you know, basically saying, I don't agree with you. And, uh, and, Job, and Zophar's fed up. He says, well, no one rebuke, rebuke you when you mock. And then he goes on to say very similar things, but in a bit of a harsher tone. In other words, you know, we are wise people. We know what we're talking about. You need to listen to us. Um, so this is what the three friends say. And, uh, you know, there's a sense in which, um, as you read through the story of Job, uh, although it's one of the oldest books in the Bible, it's, a, it's an ancient piece of a literature, uh, there's some things that sound very familiar to us, aren't there? Some of these uh, things sound very familiar. And uh, some of these words may have even crossed your lips. A storm in a teacup. Um, John Hartley says this, he says, Unfortunately, Eliphaz is unable to hold this tension in balance. His care for Job hardens into condemnation because he feels he has to protect his cherished beliefs. So, they start off with wanting to be compassionate and caring to Job, but because um, their beliefs are being challenged, uh, their hearts become a bit hardened and they're unable... um, to be sympathetic to Job, as well as hold on to their own beliefs. They're not be able to be sympathetic to Job. So, storm warning. Uh, there's something here about the understanding of God. Uh, something here about our understanding of God. Because you see... What the friends say is actually sound biblical advice. What they say you will find uh, written in the words of scripture. You know, this is from Deuteronomy. All these blessings will come upon you if you obey the Lord. In other words, if you do what God says, God will bless you. That's what is repeated again and again in the Old Testament. And of course the opposite of that is, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and you do not carefully follow his commandments and decrees, all these curses will come upon you. This is what is known as 
as uh, the doctrine of divine retribution. You know, if you do what God says, he will bless you. If you don't do what God says, he will curse you. And it's found throughout the Old Testament. This is a, a sound, and, and there's some truth in it, obviously. You know, we would want to say, we would encourage people to be obedient to what God says and to the teachings of Jesus. And we would say, wouldn't we, that if you do that, you know, you're going to have the life that God wants and you will be blessed. And we know there are circumstances when we're disobedient to God that things start to go wrong. And so, you know, the thing about the friend's argument is that there's some uh, soundness and, and, and it comes out of, of, of sound doctrine and, and, and scripture. Uh, sound biblical advice. Um, but Francis Anderson points out that, you know, this is what makes the collision of minds so dramatic, is the soundness of their views and the clarity of their arguments. You know, they're putting across uh, stuff. And the thing is, you know, um, to add to that, this is what Job would have believed as well. This is what Job would have believed, because he was in that, that same belief system. He too would have believed. In fact, he says as much, doesn't he? At the end of, you know, chapter, chapter 2, you know, should we accept, you know... Blessing from God, but not curse. You know, he's saying the same thing. It's that same argument, you know, that uh, that you get what you deserve. That's what they believed. That's what they believed. And so there is a warning, you know, about how we handle scripture, but also about how we apply it. You see, whilst the, it was sound advice, it just wasn't appropriate to Job's situation. It just wasn't appropriate. And not only was it not appropriate, it wasn't the correct thing to do. Because Job keeps saying to them, you know, what have I done to deserve this? That's basically what Job says, you know, what have I done to deserve this? What have I done to deserve this? Notice also, you know, that throughout the, uh, the conversations that, that the friends have with Job, that there's no doubt whatsoever where Job's trouble comes from. There is no question. Job talks about the arrows of the Almighty being uh, within me. Uh, there's no question within the, within the conversation that Job and his friends come, you know, that Job's trouble comes from God. And so this is the dilemma that they face. You know, why is Job suffering so much? Why is Job suffering so much? David Kidner, in his uh, book on Job, he says, The basic error of Job's friends is that they overestimate their grasp of the truth, misapply the truth they know, and close their minds to any facts that contradict what they assume. Just notice that phrase, that they close their minds to any facts that contradict their assume. In other words, you've got a person here, a friend of theirs whom they knew. And because they knew Job, you think, well, they, they, they might be a little bit more compassionate. No, they'd know Job's history that we read in, in chapter 1, that he was, he was upright, he was blameless, there was no one else like him. They would have known these things about Job. But they very quickly come to the conclusion that Job must have committed some terrible, horrendous sin because of the amount of suffering that he is experiencing. And you see, there's this tension between what they believe about God and what they see Job experiencing. And they resolve the tension by sticking with their long-held traditional beliefs that God blesses those who are obedient and God curses those who are disobedient. Job is suffering, so he must have not only been disobedient, the amount of suffering that he experiences must meant he's committed some horrendous sin that we don't know about. That's the conclusion they come to. That's the conclusion. 
But we know that God has already spoken. You see, the friends don't know this. And God has said, have you, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one else on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Uh, we know that the friends are wrong. We know that they're misapplying scripture. The problem is Job doesn't know that. He thinks that's the case, but he doesn't know it. And this is the tension in the book of Job. This is the tension uh, in these chapters. And the warning is, you know, we have to be so careful about how we apply scripture. Because that idea, as I've already said, you know, that God blesses those that are obedient and God curses those that aren't obedient, is not very far from where some of us are, is it? Because we say, don't we, very naturally, you know, when something goes wrong, we also ask that same question, don't we? What have I done to deserve this? Is a question that is still asked today. It's a very up-to-date question. We ask it. And when we ask that question, what we're actually saying is, we're actually thinking about that doctrine of divine retribution. We're actually thinking in the same mindset as Job and his friends. You know, that if we're good, that God will bless us. And if something goes wrong, then it must be because we've done something wrong. Charles Swindle, he says this, he says, When your mind is made up and you think you've already figured out what caused this, you can't really understand the truth because you are no longer listening. Your own conclusions have blocked your hearing. In other words, you know, um, because we've already worked out what we think we know, if somebody comes along with a new idea, we're not very open to, to hearing it. And if someone comes on in a situation that doesn't quite fit our ideas, we're more likely to stick with our long-held beliefs than to explore a new situation or a new idea. Because we're not really listening. And throughout the conversation, um, Job's friends don't really listen to what Job says. They don't really listen to his arguments because they want to stick to their beliefs. And they believe wholeheartedly they're good people. They're wise people. And they believe that they're defending God. And of course the warning is, you know, is just be careful how we defend God. Be careful how we defend God. Because we know that actually the friends were wrong in their defence of God. And we can very easily fall into that same kind of thinking. In a, in a, in a genuinely good you know, uh, desire to defend God and to, to, to look to scripture. These are what the friends do. They're good people. These are not nasty people who have come intending to, to heap you know, more trouble on Job. There are people like that in the world. There are people like that you know, who, will, who will love to see somebody in, in, in a bad situation and, and laugh and be, be nasty. That's not, that's not a free friend. These are good people. But they're wrong. And Job is caught in the middle of this storm. And sometimes you and I are caught in the middle of that storm. Maybe you've been visited by Job's comforters. You know, sometimes people, uh, because they don't know what to say, they come out with some very strange ideas. I was talking in the previous weeks of one of the reasons why, of why I've really uh, got to enjoy and, and like this book of Job is because of our own personal experiences of suffering and of, of losing children. And uh, my wife, Susan, will never forget that one of her friends uh, suggested to her, after we'd lost our second child, was, you know, maybe this was God's way of telling you, he didn't want you to have children. And again, you know, this was, this was a friend. And obviously, you know, um, it's, they, they didn't intend to, to cause hurt or to cause harm. They just didn't know what to say. But people try and work it out, don't they? And, and sometimes things don't quite come out as you would hope they would come out. 
And that's why we've got to be so careful. Because the three friends, in the genuine desire to help Job and, and, and to put him right as far as they were concerned, they wanted, they, their suggestion is that if Job repents, then all his suffering will stop. You know, or they say time and time again, you know, if you just turn to God and repent, you know, then God will bless you again, like he did before. But you see, Job's in this turmoil because he's, he's thinking, well, what have I done to deserve this? And any sin that I've committed, it's not, there's, there's, there's no coalition between the, the amount of suffering and the sin. In other words, life isn't fair. Have you, have you worked that one out yet? Have, have you noticed that, that life isn't fair? You know, some people seem to breeze through life without any trouble whatsoever. Uh, other people just seem to have one thing after another after another. Have you noticed that? My daughter, my younger daughter, Jessica, says, you always say that, Dad. Uh, normally when I'm explaining to her why Rachel's getting something that she's not getting or being allowed to, to, to go somewhere she's not allowed to go. And I'll say, you know, life isn't fair. She says, you're always saying that. <laughs> uh, but it's true, isn't it? Life isn't fair. It isn't fair. Life isn't fair. And, and God isn't fair. What about that one? God isn't fair. Do you, have, you, have you found that one out yet? Uh, you actually like the fact that God isn't fair. Uh, because that's what grace is about, getting, being treated in ways that we don't deserve. So we like it when God is not fair, when it's on our favour, and when we're being blessed because God isn't treating us in the way that we don't deserve. But we don't like it on the, on the other hand, do we? When we're being treated not so nice, and it's not fair. And that's when we say it's not fair, isn't it? We don't say it's fair, it's not fair when we're winning, we only say it when we're on the losing side. Job is saying, you know, it isn't fair, he's caught in this storm, in this tension. And the agony for Job isn't just the fact that, that, you know, the agony of the physical suffering, it's the emotional suffering. It's trying to work out what God is doing. And, and, and for Christians, you know, it, 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 obviously we would say it's a blessing that God is with us in difficult situations. But it can also be uh, an added dimension to our suffering in that we're trying to work out, hang on a second, I thought God was on our side, I thought God was for me and not against me. And Job, you know, cannot work out why this God who his experience up until then had been a very positive experience of God, who blessed him and who was, you know, always with him and there. And suddenly he gets this uh, other experience of God that is alien to him. And he's caught in this, in the middle of the storm. And so he says, you know, am I the sea monster of the deep that you put me under guard? If I've sinned, what have I done to you, a watcher of men? In other words, you know, I've not done anything that bad. He's not claiming perfection. He's just saying, I don't understand why I'm being treated in the way that I've been treated. A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, he says to his friends. You know, uh, where's your compassion? You know, it's me, your friend Job. What, what's, what's, you know, what's happening here? Um, he says that uh, what you know, I also know. In other words, you know, I know what you're saying. I, I know there's truth in what you're saying. Uh, you, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. He tells it as it is, Job, doesn't he? He says to his friends, you know, uh, in other words, it was better. Those, those seven days when you were silent was much more was was a much more positive experience. Uh, why don't you shut up? In other words, is what he's saying to them. And sometimes, you know, you may feel like saying that to people when they come alongside you. Why don't you shut up instead of trying to 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 explain what's going on here? Because you see, the dilemma that they have—they're trying to explain the unexplainable. They're trying to explain. They're trying to make sense and fairness 
out of a situation that they don't understand. They don't understand it because they've not been privileged to the information that we've been privileged. They would have never come to the conclusion about what was happening. They would have never been able to have come to that conclusion because it would have never entered their minds to think that God might have made some sort of wager with this Satan character. It wouldn't have entered their minds. They could have never come to that conclusion. So Job, is, he's got this turmoil. He's in the middle of the storm. And uh, it's the storm within that rages. The storm within as Job tries to desperately work out. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak of the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. And throughout Job's speeches, Job appeals to God to answer him. He says time and time again, God, tell me, what have I done to deserve this? Explain to me what's going on. And he complains out of the bitterness of his soul. And again, we just remind ourselves that it's okay to do that. It's okay to complain. Some of you already know that. You're quite good at complaining. But you can complain you know, to other people besides the minister or deacons. You can actually complain to God when life isn't fair. You can actually say to God, it's not fair. And you can turn that into a prayer, into a, a lament. You can even turn that into worship. It's not fair, but I'm still going to worship you. It's not fair, but I'm still going to follow you. It's not fair, but I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give in when life isn't fair. Does it please you to oppress me, Job says, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? In other words, you know, I'm a good person and I'm suffering and there's wicked people out there that seem to have it easy. And we too can say that, can't we? We can look at people uh, who don't live godly lives and in terms of this world seem to be very blessed in, in what they have. And again, it's that unfairness about everything that's happening in the world. And the storm within continues. But within that storm we find remarkably words of hope. Considering Job's situation and considering uh, the lack of compassion amongst his friends and a lack of understanding about what's going on, we find remarkable words of hope in the speeches of Job. He says, though he slay me, that's God, though he slay me, Yet I will hope in him. And you can, can you see the dilemma in Job? Though God is against me, though God appears from my circumstances no longer to be my friend, I'm going to put my hope in him. A remarkable statement of faith that he's still going to hope in the God who appears to be wounding him, to be against him. He's still going to put his hope in him. And this is what faith is about. About putting our faith in a God that sometimes we don't understand. Even when God seems absent. And in Job's case, even when Job, when God seems to have turned from being the friend to the enemy, he still says, this is where I'm going to place my hope. His faith his beliefs are all over the shot. He's confused. He can't understand. He can't work out what he's going. But something within him says, this is where I'm going to place my hope. I'm going to put my trust in that God that I once knew and experienced, even though my present circumstances seem to question the very existence 
or the very justice or fairness of God, or the love of God. This is where I'm going to put my hope. And it gets even better, because he says, he says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. This is absolutely amazing stuff. If you think of, of, of when this was written, you know, we know about resurrection. We know about life after death. Job's belief system would not have entertained those ideas. And yet, he says, he talks about the fact that a redeemer, that his redeemer lives. And that even after his skin has been destroyed, he reckons that he will see God. A remarkable statement of faith. And of course, we can't, as soon as we see the word redeemer, we can't help thinking about our redeemer. We open a service with some of those words from Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And what we see in Job is, is, is a type. Uh, the kind of technical terms is a typology. You know, here's, here's somebody who precedes Christ, but acts or experiences something that Christ will act and experience. So here we have an innocent person who suffers and dies for God's purposes. Whatever we think about God's purposes and the conversation that he has with the Satan character, uh, we know that actually Job is suffering on behalf of God's glory, God's purpose. And of course, we can't help recognise that here we have a, 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 a type of Christ. A picture of what Jesus will do because Jesus will come into the world and he will suffer and he will die on God's behalf so that we can be redeemed. So that we can say, you know, I know that my Redeemer lives. You see, the friends' arguments didn't allow for an innocent person who suffered. And some people suggest that's the whole purpose of the book of Job. To kind of uh, counterbalance the teaching in scripture, you know, about divine uh, retribution. There is another strand of teaching that talks about an innocent person that suffers. But the the three friends couldn't entertain that idea that an innocent person could suffer. It had to be the guilty person that suffers. But here we have a picture of Jesus who was perfectly innocent. We know it, we know it. And yet he was crucified and he died for our sins. It wasn't fair, it's not fair. Again, we shout it's not fair. But we benefit from the unfairness of the cross. We benefit from the unfairness. And this is the God that we serve and worship and love. And Job is caught within that storm, but he finds within the storm hope. Hope of life, hope of an end to the suffering, but hope of life after death. And without realising what he was talking about, we have a very, very early idea of the possibility of resurrection. We have that idea in scripture, you know, there's a theme going through scripture. It isn't something that God has a different idea. He's working it out from the beginning of time right through to the end of time. There is a plan that's been worked out. And it's amazing that we see that in scripture. That this was God's plan for the world from the beginning of time. And here's an example of an innocent man who suffers because of God's purposes. 
And the friends can't handle that. The friends can't handle it. And so they pronounce Job as guilty. And they tell him to repent. And Job says, well, I've got nothing to repent for. Or I've repented for any sin that I've committed. Because remember that custom that he had at the beginning, read about his daily custom was to offer sacrifices, not only for his own sins, but for any sins that the children might have, might have, uh, 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 have committed. That was his daily custom. So here we have this idea, a type of Christ, a picture of a Christ that suffers and dies. But hallelujah, there is hope. And so if we're facing difficulties in our lives, if we're suffering at this moment of time, then hang on in there is the message of Job. Don't give up. When life isn't fair, when life is horrible, when when things don't work out, the message of Job is to hang in on there. Even when people come alongside you uh, with less than encouragement, with less than compassion, hang on to that God because that's where we place our hope. And don't always come to the conclusions that we do. Don't be too quick to defend God when somebody's angry. Don't be too quick to defend God when, when people are suffering, when people allow people, you know, to rebel and to shout and to scream and to get annoyed with God. Don't be frightened of that. Allow them that place to do that. Because we see it in Job. And we see it in, in Jesus. Who when he was on the cross, he cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus experiences the forsakenness of God. And sometimes we do. And that's where we gather around the table to remind ourselves that our God is a suffering God. That our God sends Jesus into the world to suffer and die so that we can be redeemed. So that we can have life. 